When Joan and I set out to launch Global Goods Partners, it was this in mind. It was how how do we, with our expertise in international development, grassroots community development, bring women, especially the most marginalized and their families, into the global economy, and in doing so, help strengthen their capacity to continue to provide employment to other women and bring benefits to the whole family and community. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Joan Schifrin and Catherine Chimoni, co-founders and co-presidents of Global Goods Partners, buy handmade and change women's lives. They join us today from New York City. Welcome, Joan and Catherine. Thanks, Vidya. We're happy to be with you. Thank you so much. Global Goods Partners is first of its sorts for mindful businesses. You're a different brand compared to the other brands we have featured you are a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization, whereas the other brands on our shows have been for-profit brands. Can you tell me how you both met? We met uh, years ago. We were both students together. We went to graduate school together and uh, remained friends for many years uh, while we each pursued different directions professionally. Uh, we found ourselves both working in the field of international development, which is what we studied, uh, international economics and development. And a certain point, we were working on some of the same projects as grant makers. We were involved with same uh, groups overseas, mostly working in the global south. And we were visiting some of the same projects. And the thing that we noticed and what sort of turned our attention to start Global Goods Partners was that there was a, a lot of attention being paid by grant makers and different organizations to education and to and social development. And we really felt that what was missing was a focus on economic development, income generation. And while that, of course, was uh, something that different organizations and large NGOs were working on. We saw from a very grassroots level that we felt like we, we could make a difference. And that difference had to do with trying to bring market access to some of the groups that we were working with. We saw women around the world creating beautiful handcrafted products. There was, in some cases, a small local market, but we felt like they not only the products deserved an international market, but that the benefit that could come from connecting them would be an important piece economically for the women and their families. Catherine, um, tell me what your inspiration was. Like, did Joan come and ask you, hey, let's do this? Or was it your idea? Who came up with the idea? Um, well, I think we both sort of were at a point in our careers where we wanted to focus on this, as Joan said, on economic empowerment of women. And it was one summer when we were hanging out and, and I said, well, you know, we can do this. We have the background and we know how to work in, you know, developing economies. And we, we have colleagues who live overseas, but we've worked with so many colleagues um, at the grassroots level. So we both thought about it and, and came up with very basic business plan and what it would take to really um, begin a, an organization. And 
We have learned a lot over the last 14 years, but it was a combination of where we were in our careers and with our respective foundations and international development organizations that we were working with. So which was the first country you started? And you started 14 years ago, so about 2005? We had a handful of countries that we started with, and those were places that we had both worked and visited extensively and had connections with primarily women-led community organizations that had a strong income generation piece to the work that they were doing. So they were led by women's rights activists and maybe working in the field of healthcare, but then also had this income generation project in the craft sector that was doing very well. And in visiting the community, and this happened to both Joan and I, when we would go in the field and meet with our respective uh, grantee partners, we would receive a beautiful handcrafted gift. And then we would ask, who made this gift? And are you selling these beautiful products, either handwoven or embroidered product or knitted product? And then we would find out that, um, in fact, they were trying to market the product, but really needed a lot of guidance, that they weren't earning fair living wage, they weren't pricing their products adequately. So we started in just a handful of countries with a handful of community organizations and cooperatives, and it grew from there. Which was the first country? Cambodia. Was Was there a first or was it a bunch of countries? It was a bunch of countries. I I guess it wasn't just... Uganda. Yeah, but you think that was the first though? Well, (laughs) (laughs) this is Joan. When we um, were working on our business plan, we needed, we felt like we had to start with a collection of products. And so we looked at projects that we knew well, and it was an assortment. So we had a project, as I recall, um, we worked with a group in Cambodia, Friends International, I believe, and the Artisans Association of Cambodia working with silk scarves, and then in Uganda with hand-painted reading cards and note cards. Um, We also worked in South Africa with a community of beaters making beautiful beaded bowls and ornaments. Um, So I would say there was probably half a dozen groups that we launched all together. So a number of countries. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but our our thought was we would make products available on the website, not do any on-site retail. And this was at sort of the dawn of online retail. And we, along with other people who were starting off, really didn't know what that world would become. So you were the pioneers in the e-commerce. This was even before Etsy? It was. Yes, yes, it was before Etsy. (laughs) How do you select these artisans? Do you think like, I want more scarves, people want scarves, and then you go out and seek different scarves? Or or do the products come to you? Which way does it work? Yeah. So we we identify the women-led social enterprises and cooperatives and associations first. And we're looking for not only women-led, but also majority of women artisans that they support, um, but well-governed entities. And then we begin a dialogue. Um, so as a, as a member of the Fair Trade Federation from day one when we launched, um, we want to make sure that the women are earning a fair living wage and, a, and, and that our partners are abiding by the principles of fair trade. So that's how we, we begin. But we learn about them through, 
you know, our previous work in international development, um, but also through colleagues who live in um, the countries where we work, and then word of mouth. And then we also get invited quite frequently to large craft shows, um, especially in Latin America. We've, we've been to Peru and Guatemala and Colombia. And then also through you know, U.S. government agency and USAID has been involved, craft development, and has reached out to us. Um, and we've done a lot of work over the years um, with other U.N. agencies, UNDP and UNHCR, the refugee agencies. So I think anyone working in the fair trade um, sector will have heard about us. So the business model or rather the nonprofit model that you have is you work with women-led agencies and uh, you work with them to bring the handicrafts over. So how do you assure quality? Who makes the designs or are they all traditional designs that you bring? Do you change the designs to suit the American market? (laughs) That that process has evolved over time. Uh, At the beginning, we were so eager to get started that we pretty much were selecting products that are, that the partners that we were working with made. And then we realized that there was a a bigger market that we could capture. And if we wanted to be competitive in not just the, uh, the the market for global products, but for gifts, uh, we really had to become more sophisticated in how we operate. And so just going back to while we are a nonprofit organization, we have to operate and you know, sort of use the same standards for um, business standards that any retail company, all the accounting methods um, and logistics and everything like that. So while we are a nonprofit and we can talk about what that means for us, we operate very much like a business. Um, but just getting back to design, about six years or seven years ago, we made the investment to hire a on staff designer. And we were so lucky. The woman who we hired is a trained art school designer, but she was also a a Peace Corps volunteer and had worked with a group of women in Morocco and could so fluently translate not designs from rudimentary to to take a a design and explain to women with different education levels uh, how to, in fact, fabricate what the, the design represented. And and that has served us very well over the past many years since she's been on staff. It makes a huge difference. People may want to buy something from a company like ours once, uh, but if you want repeat customers, there you have to offer something that people really want to buy. So we want to use the, the skill sets that the women, our partners, what their traditional skill sets are, but we really need to offer contemporary design. So who does the quality control? Our artisan partners do the quality control in country. And then when we receive the product, we also do spot checks. It's really important that quality is strong and people love our mission. But first and foremost, it's about the product. And I will add that our designer, she works very closely with our artist partner. She spends a lot of time in country talking to them about design trends and showing different techniques 
And all the products that we feature are using locally available materials, which can place um, a bit of a challenge when you want to be competitive in, in a very competitive retail market. All the products are handmade, right? There's no machines used. Yes, all the products are handmade. Sometimes there's sewing machines that are used to finish product or even hand sewing machines with, you know, um, very intricate patterns. But for the most part, everything is hand knitted, hand embroidered, hand loomed, you know, with the backstrap loom. So, so most of, most of our partners don't use electricity. Fascinating. Like you mentioned, you have to sell, Mm -hmm. otherwise you won't exist. So and you also have to probably make a profit, though you're a nonprofit. <laughs> so you, do you make a profit? Well, we do have support from donors as well. And that percentage varies from year to year. The way we distinguish ourselves is that from other for for-profit and investment-backed groups is we're, A, we're in it for the long haul with our partners and we are making an investment. And that's something that People who are interested in advancing women's economic independence, it's a mission that resonates with people in addition to just the beautiful products that we offer. So about 60 or 70% of our revenue comes from the sale of our products, and then we do seek donations for the other percentage. And we do, as Catherine was mentioning, we do a a lot of training, uh, both in design, logistics, for some of our groups, they've never exported before, and it can be complicated, very complicated. And there's some in some countries, there's tariffs, and um, it's just a, a lot for us as well as for them. And you know, the first time there takes a bit of there's bureaucracy on both ends. I'd say. So, do you have a logistics uh, expert on your team? Because you have twenty different countries. Just keeping track of the the shipments coming in would be one nightmare, I would imagine. Yes. So we do have a logistics expert um, and we have a warehouse that's not too far from our office. And we actually had a huge order that we were working on and making sure that you know, all the right UPC codes were on there and, and the quality was 100%. I will also say that, you know, part of the reason that we have foundation support is because we take risks. So we're working in conflict regions and post-conflict regions. Um, as I mentioned, we've done projects with the UN and right now we're, we're working with and, and providing guidance with a UNHCR affiliated program working with Malian refugees in Burkina Faso. So, and we're their first and and um, only right now U.S. partner to market their products. And we work in Haiti and Afghanistan. And when you enter into countries that require a lot of guidance to really be successful in the U.S. marketplace, that takes a lot of time and energy and resources. So that's part of the reason that our product sales don't offset all our costs. So how is the living wage of the artisans who supply goods or products to global goods partners changed? Um, Do you have some numbers? Is there one particular artisan group or organization which stands out? In terms of the living wage, before we begin our partnership, we work closely with our the artisan partner that we're bringing on, we have a a list of questions that we ask them. And 
first, we begin by telling them all about us and what we're able to offer in terms of our partnership. And then we ask them questions about when were they founded? Tell us about your governance structure. Tell us about how you price your products. And tell us about what are the wages in your community? Does your country have a minimum wage? And how are artisans paid for for the products that they produce? And in addition to that, we ask about the materials that they use locally and all sorts of other questions. But in terms of the wage, it's really important that we understand, are they charging enough for their products so that the women are earning a living wage? And how does that compared to the costs that women and families have for food and education. So we have a really good understanding before we begin the partnership of the economic indicators in the communities where we work. So that's that's the, the first point I'd like to make. But we also, in terms of the impact, we see that direct impact when we purchase the products. We know how much inventory we're purchasing. And I also would like to make clear that we take on that inventory risk. We buy the products outright and we own them. And then it's up to us to market them and market them well so that we can place more orders and buy more products. And that's part of our long-term commitment to our partners. We're not in it for one season or one year. We're in it for as long as they want to continue selling product to us and working with us. And so where we see the impact is really in the stories that we hear. It's in looking at the numbers and how many more artisans they bring on to to make the products. One of our most successful products, um, and has been for quite some time, are our felt products in Nepal, in Kathmandu, Nepal. And that's an organization that, you know, started small, two women who are social workers and had friendship and wanted to do something for the unemployed women, some formerly trafficked women in their community. And they started this small social enterprise. And we were one of their, we were their first customer um, in the U.S. And we have been with them for a long time and we have seen the growth over the years, which is dramatic. I mean, now they're up to 170 women artisans. And when I first met them over 10 years ago, they had maybe 15 artisans. So we measure the impact through the growth of the organization, what else they're able to do locally. I think that's also a really important point. Work together with our partners to build their capacity and provide direct technical assistance and training isn't just for the international global marketplace. It's also for them to be able to compete locally and sell their products locally and do use those skills to also just increase the economic opportunity and activity in their communities. So there's a, a strong ripple effect in the communities where we work, and, and we've seen that firsthand. And then the last point really is, and this is where we use foundation funds, we've sent our, our team both our designer and our director of operations to Nepal to work with their team to really improve their business capacity, focusing on inventory management. And we've purchased a computer to help them keep track of their invoices and and software so that we could better communicate and they would then have the ability to strengthen their business in other markets in Europe or elsewhere. When Joan and I set out to 
launched Global Goods Partners, it was this in mind. It was how how do we, with our expertise in international development, grassroots community development, bring women, especially the most marginalized and their families, into the global economy, and in doing so, help strengthen their capacity to continue to provide employment to other women and bring benefits to the whole family and community. So how many total organizations do you work with? You said 20 countries and how many different organizations? So we're, we're close to 60 organizations that we work with. And again, they range from cooperatives, to associations, community organizations, and social enterprises. All of our partners have a strong community development, social mission, if you will, component to their entities. That's pretty overwhelming to deal with 60 different suppliers <laughs> and multiple products in each that each supplier is bringing. Um, is, is selling to you or making for you and bringing them over and uh, marketing. It's You, you probably, don't, <laughs> I don't think you get any sleep. With the time difference, you're not to yes. miss that. Like you have perform here and then Nepal is, you know, 10 and a half hours ahead of us. You know, this, the, because this is a business program, I, I will mention <laughs> people who are interested in mindful businesses. It has been hard, I'd say, or a challenge to achieve economies of scale in the work that we do. And that's another reason why we maintain our structure as a nonprofit organization. We really look when opportunities come our way. We evaluate each one, like, how will this advance the groups that we work with? Because we also, um, I should mention, besides being a retail site, we also have a, a pretty robust wholesale community of um, stores and shops, museum shops that buy from us, um, where I think we're in 50, there's there's a, a buyer in each of the 50 states and a few overseas. And we also do custom product as well to satisfy these three different channels and have some variety and an assortment that people can choose from. We have expanded our network to this large group of partners. Right now, we feel like it's about as much as we can handle, <laughs> honestly. So I'm trying to grasp in this short 20 minutes or so that we have how you go about your business. So you identify these groups and um, in the groups, you identify the products and, and you design the products. Somebody goes there, <laughs> teaches them how to do it. And then you do that in 20 different countries and 60 different organizations and bring it all back here and do a retail and a wholesale and try to make these make some profit. Right. Do you make any profit at all? No. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we price our products to be competitive. We, we look at first the, the business, what our expenses are to run the business, including products, the cost of goods, and then the donations and grants that we receive, we really allocate that to the work that we do with our partners on capacity building and community development. So when you add all that together, we do in most years come out ahead. So you bifurcated, you, you do one part, the foundation money seems to go to That's like correct. development and That's growth and for everyday operational, you are profitable. Yes. That's pretty commendable, actually, with the whole mission that you have. Right. And 
the variety of products and you probably have to do a lot more hand-holding because a lot of the crafts are not ready for the Western market. So how do you communicate the designs? You said yeah. something about computers, but not everybody has computers, I'm sure. Yeah, but I, I will say that's another way... Um, the world has evolved since we started. I mean, it used to be that there were a few partners that we worked with. There's WhatsApp now. That's yeah. right. I mean, that is absolutely, absolutely. Um, and our, we're on it constantly. And it's, it's a great um, development in, in our work, honestly. And we Skype and we FaceTime and do, uh, I was just about to say it, early on in 2005 when we started, I remember a group that we worked with in Uganda, the, the director had to take a bus like overnight to get to an internet cafe so he could communicate with us. Even if in places that aren't necessarily electrified or don't have electricity on a regular basis, cell phones have, have changed their world and and has changed our world as well. I think they just skipped the whole landline yes, thing and went completely. To Catherine, I just wanted to add of our 60 partners, there are some that have very strong social enterprises and they might not be partners that we work with very frequently, but they're partners that we have agreed to work together. And so, for example, we also have a robust custom clientele, and we might get an inquiry from a potential custom client asking about a particular product from a particular country. And then, you know, we will reach out to um, one of those partners who has the capacity to to work with us on that project. And that it's just important to recognize of our 60 partners, there's over a third we're in touch with very frequently through all the tools that you just mentioned, WhatsApp. But there's also other partners that we've worked with over the years, over the 14 years, that have access to other markets, and they're not as reliant on us. And yet they still want to be part of our our portfolio of partners that we can bring projects to when they present, or we've reached out because we're going to start a new collection. Those partners are less reliant on the work that we do. I mean, when Joan and I started this, it was really all about how do we bring some of the most marginalized women and their families into the market that nobody else is going to do. <laughs> nobody else will work with them because they require a lot of capacity building. And that's are some of our strongest partners are those partners that we have been their first partner in a, in a larger market. We ha- have narrowed the band of types of products that we offer. So we really are only in four distinct categories. So while we, as Catherine mentioned, we have a group of partners and the ones that we work with most closely currently, we we are really um, focused on home products, small home products, jewelry, accessories, which are scarves and bags and gloves and winter scarves. And kids has been a great category for us as well. So we stay away from anything that is size so we don't do apparel at all and that expense basis um, we that has worked for us we have very few returns which is an expensive process when you're running your own or any warehouse that has been just a, a, a good model for us to focus on these four categories one of the metrics for a nonprofit is the percent of overhead costs to run the nonprofit what is global goods? 
overhead sure. cost percentage? Our overhead costs, we calculate as 9%. The salaries for our team are factored into the different allocations. One thing we haven't really talked about is our grant making and, well, the technical assistance, but we, we award small grants to some of our partners. And that requires a certain level of expertise about grant making and following through on that programmatically on that. About 30% of our um, costs are allocated to cost of goods, actually purchasing the outright purchase of products. Um, about 17% is in warehouse and fulfillment another 8% for freight and customs, and then on marketing, um, that's about 19%. And I, I think it's important um, to put in the mix here is that we, we see ourselves as working on both the demand side and the supply side of the marketplace. So the supply is bringing to market products that our partners produce that people want to buy. And so that's all about the, the product and getting it here. And then the other side is really the audience. How do we create a, a market for the products that we're offering? In this last iteration of our website, we realized that we need to look like a, sh a site that people <laughs> want to shop on. When we first started, there was just a, we had a, a lot of content and it was tripping up our keywords and, <laughs> and, uh, how, how people could find us. And we really needed to streamline. Our, our, our mission is really important to us. And it's important to some of our audience, but it's not important to everybody. So we need to find, and it's still a little elusive, finding the right balance for um, how we market ourselves between having great product and telling our story and the story of our partners. So that is something that we sort of um, full tool with constantly. Talking about the people on your team, um, I noticed that everybody except one person on your board was a woman. Uh -huh. How did you manage that? It's so hard <laughs> to get uh, to get attract I know. and retain yeah. these talented yeah. women. Well, we feel really lucky. That's first. You know, Catherine and I have we've been so lucky um, in the different jobs that we've had to be around great women, be mentored by some great women. We, we felt women were a natural audience for what we're doing. Our focus is on women. It's on product. And people really gravitate to our to global goods partners that people who know us you know we we want to get the word out to more and more people um but it's a, uh, not a hard sell i'd say <laughs> for women who we come in contact with so you briefly mentioned about the grants that you give so do you have a dollar amount that you have given up to now since 2005, we've given over a quarter of a million dollars worth in, of grants. I'm going to give it to Catherine. We've worked in a lot of different um, areas from healthcare to education and even to support their social enterprises. So we've done a healthcare a big healthcare project in Tanzania, equipping local women with a traditional birthing kit. And we've also done a public health project in Afghanistan, just meeting 
with um, Afghan women and their families about basic health care, basic hygiene. That's something that all of our, our partners identify what they want the resources um, for. And so all of our grant making is led by our partners and they know that this opportunity exists for them and they fill out a pretty easy application just telling us what the project is and how it will be implemented and what budget will accompany the project and basic grant making. But not everyone takes advantage of it. And we've also done emergency funding. Um, So after two earthquakes, one in Nepal and um, and Sri Lanka. We've done emergency relief funding. So yeah, there's there's quite a variety of projects that we've helped support to support our partners. Thank you, Joan Schifrin and Catherine Shimoni for all the great work that you and Global Goods Partners is doing. Thank you for being mindful. Thank you for having us. Thank you. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send us a message on our Facebook or Instagram page. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana at Q1067. Thank you, Jim Stone, the owner of Q1067. Tatum Gale composed the music for this podcast. This is Vidya Ayer for Mindful Businesses. 